0: Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. How do species get their names? We're headed behind the scenes at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History to meet a scientist with super-naming superpowers. He's kind of a sea star superstar, and he's going to show us how he's
1: discovered and named over 50 new species.
0: We asked our listeners what they would name a new species. And here's what five-year-old Frankie has to say. My species is a and It has a body of a jaguar and a head and tail of a chameleon. It has turkey feathers. When it's a baby, it can have a unicorn horn. And when it gets older, it loses it. Jagmelior sounds uh, pretty awesome. Is it a mammal? Is it a bird? (laughs) Maybe it's all of the above. I think it will completely turn our classification system on its head.
1: That is for sure. The (laughs) unicorn part, I think especially, is going to be confusing to scientists.
0: (laughs) Well, they already got narwhals out there, so what could be weirder than that? That's so
1: true. That's true. Okay, I wonder what the scientific name of the Jagmelior would be.
0: I think it'd be uh, reptilius, unicornius, (laughs) jaguar.
1: (laughs) So who gets to give species their proper scientific names? When and why? Think about it, because we're about to start a journey to find out. If you ever get the chance to go to the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C., you'll find incredible exhibits about fascinating science. But behind the walls of the exhibit, there's much, much more. The Smithsonian is home to a collection of 145 million scientific specimens.
0: Last summer, we got to go behind closed doors with help from one of our favorite discoverers of new species.
2: So I'm Chris Ma and I am a scientist here at the National Museum of Natural History.
0: Chris is a sea star
1: scientist that we featured in our season 3 episode, The Surprising Story of Sea Star Sticky Feet. We met him at the giant squid tank in Ocean Hall and he took us to his office. Yeah, so we're looking at it's a table full of echinoderm specimens. Yes, sea stars, actually. Yeah. A big so, part of Chris's job is to discover new species of sea stars, and this office is where it happens. But at first glance, you wouldn't really know it. Chris's office was, like, how would you describe it, Marshall?
0: Like, you know, kind of cluttered. Like, you know, like in, like, nutty professor way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: cluttered with sea stars.
0: Yeah, there were, like, sea stars all over the place. So
2: it okay if I get a picture of the table? Yeah, yeah, go table. ahead.
1: It's an office full of visual interest. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. There was a lot to photograph, like tables full of plastic boxes, baggies. And just imagine that if instead of being into whatever you were into when your room gets messy, you just had a bunch of sea star specimens everywhere
1: (laughs) my favorite part of his office was actually the sea star toys that he had collected from all over the world so he kind of did have that like bedroom bureau situation going on
0: yeah he has a lot of sea star toys
1: chris told us that the reason he studies sea stars actually has a lot to do with toys
2: I often say that it harkens back to my love of Batman action figures and other types of things because, you know, I mean what is what is the great thing about Batman is you get to see the same character, but they always have different accessories. You know, there's Sub-Zero Batman or there's Stealth Batman or Aquanaut Batman or whatever.
1: Chris sees sea stars in the same way as those action figures. They all have their own special powers.
2: There are sea stars that are sort of more muscle attack sea star, and then there's mud-digging sea stars, and then there's, you know, deep-sea sea sea stars, which hold their arms up in the water to feed on things. But they all have a different toolkit, an evolutionary toolkit.
1: So just like Aquanaut Batman has some kind of story behind why he owns an underwater bat suit, each sea star has a reason for being spiny or bumpy or even
0: slimy. They're trying to fight slimy crime.
2: (laughs) There's a lot of interesting stories that, you know, you can learn from these animals. And a lot of it's tied into what they look like, the classification, a lot of the relationship. And also, you know, I collect action figures. So, you know, that is is a thing.
1: So you, like, want to collect all the sea stars?
2: Well, it's a little different because sea stars are animals, and I don't need to actually... You know, have them, and I sit on a giant collection at work.
1: I mean, it kind of looks like you do <laughs> yeah
2: but i I believe it or not, I, I actually didn't collect most of these.
1: Chris has been on a few big ocean research expeditions. He's even dived in submersibles, but mostly he's the go-to sea star guy for everyone else. Other scientists send him what they've collected from oceans around the world.
2: And so what you're seeing on my desk, the clutter, if you will, of specimens, is actually a, all of my data, all of my work.
0: When you think of scientists and data, I mean, certainly I don't think of baggies of sea stars.
1: Yeah, to us and probably Marie Kondo, it was mess. But Chris could see something that we couldn't.
2: Some of these are new species. You can't see it, but I'm holding a bag with a new species of sea star that was collected from the Philippines.
0: Ooh, so it's like getting a sneak peek at next season's hottest new sea stars. Surprise, they are small and (laughs) sand-colored.
1: When Chris says new species of sea star, it doesn't mean that they, like, just got invented or designed. Maybe fishermen have been seeing them and they're part of the ocean for years, but Nobody's ever properly studied
0: them.
2: When I say it's a new species, it's one that hasn't been previously uh, known to science.
0: So you don't just pull a sea star out of the ocean and say, oh, look, new species. Here we go, everybody. This one's called Bob. Bob, sea star species.
1: It doesn't go like that at all. There's actually just a lot of paperwork involved.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you basically do the paperwork equivalent of that. <laughs>
2: <No>. <laughs> I will take measurements. I will uh, photo document then write a technical description. And then eventually this will become part of a paper that I'll publish on new sea star species.
1: That paper will be published in a scientific journal for other scientists to read. And that means Chris gets the honor of of discovering and naming the new sea star.
2: And so that's one of those, if you will, superpowers that scientists like me have, is that when we publish uh, papers about new species, we also are the ones who give them the names. So he's
0: basically a sea star action
2: hero.
1: Yeah, and Chris had plenty to show us outside of his office as well. When we were done gawking and photographing, he took us out to the main collections. We passed by rows and rows of huge steel cabinets. Chris stopped us in front of row four, where there was a small table with a poster board covered with black and white photos of a ship called the Albatross.
2: The Albatross was operated by the U.S. Fish Commission. It operated between 1882 to 1921. And this was a ship that uh, essentially was exploring the marine habitats all around the Pacific.
1: The albatross is how many of the sea star specimens ended up in the drawers behind the display. It was one of the first boats ever built for marine research.
2: It went to Honolulu. It went to Japan. um, They went up to the North Pacific.
1: The albatross had a team of scientists on board. It was their job to collect and document as much marine life as they possibly could while they were traveling. Then Everything they found was packed up and shipped off to universities and museums like the Smithsonian.
2: A lot of what they uh, collected was brought here and became the core of the research collection that the scientists here work on today.
0: So that means in this very room we were standing in were the sea stars from the Albatross expeditions of over 100 years ago.
2: But for example, we can look at some of the specimens here.
1: Chris led us back into the cases and started opening up the drawers. In all of these drawers, look at how many sea stars there are. It's just like, it's like a confetti of tiny sea stars.
2: The uh, thing I'm about to show you is essentially um, what's called the type collection.
1: Many of the specimens collected by the albatross and sent here were the first of their kind that had been discovered and described. They set the standard for every other member of their species.
2: And so this is where we keep those. These are kept for the entire history of science.
1: Keeping them in one public place makes it possible for other scientists to come and study them and for us to see them too.
2: For example, I'm showing Lindsay.
0: Chris pulled a big plastic bag out of a drawer. Inside was a bumpy brown sea star with long arms.
2: Whoa! This is a sea star called Pisaster giganteus, and
1: I can see why it's it's huge.
2: Yes, <laughs> it's almost two feet across. But the thing is, if you look at most of the species of of Pisaster giganteus today, they're not very big. They're about hand-sized, but they're not really large. It
1: turns out the scientists who named this very sea star we were looking at had found a giant.
0: It would be like if aliens landed on Earth and they collected a human (laughs) that was seven foot four and they called everyone giant ape things. (laughs) (laughs) And then they'd be surprised to find me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but that's the way that discovering a new species works. Whoever finds it first gets to name it using very fancy Latin words even if their idea of the whole species is kind of wrong.
0: Which brings us to an obvious question. Oh yeah, how
1: do you get a species named after you? It's, I think an important <laughs> question.
2: Um, Well, uh, you know someone like me, that's one way to do it. Um, <laughs>
0: Hello. Tumblicus? Uh, <laughs> Tumblis
2: um, <tumulus> giganticus. <laughs> uh, it could easily be anything from Tumblaster... Educator, you know, (laughs) the thing is that Latin is a dead language, so no one's creating new words in Latin Some people are very by the book and they go by um, uh, Descriptions, other people like to name things after people
0: So it's like a personal style choice Right,
1: as long as you squeeze some Latin in there. So it's a
0: personalist stylist choices.
1: Do you have any named after yourself?
2: Oh, no. Um, that's actually a big no-no. It's sort of a uh, professional way of saying that I'm a big egotistical maniac.
0: So it's like not a good look.
1: Yeah, what you have to do is patiently wait around for a friend to discover a new species and then do that friend
0: a favor. So who has Chris named sea star species after?
2: Yeah, there's one sea star that's from Madagascar. Called Neo for Dina Momo.
0: It's named for one of Chris's
1: favorite action heroes.
2: The reason I named it that is because there's a uh, there's a show called Go Ranger in Japan. Um, it's sort of like the very first Power Ranger show and the Girl Ranger is called Momo Ranger.
1: Momo is Japanese for pink and the Girl Ranger wears pink
2: It has a, ro- a nice ring to it Neo for Dina Momo. When you think of it I mean it is a superpower. It really
0: is. You get to give things names that then they have for the rest of humanity.
1: Yeah. And these creatures have evolved over hundreds of thousands of years in some cases. And you get to come along and name them after your favorite TV character.
0: (laughs) Or maybe your best friend or, you know, like your favorite podcast.
1: Exactly. So let's ask our listeners, now that you know how the species name sausage gets made, How would you do it? Would you be by the book or would you get creative?
0: Choose a type of animal species and look at their scientific names. See if you can spot the patterns and then come up with your own ideas for some new species.
1: Dr. Chris Ma, Research Associate at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History.
0: Thanks to Frankie and the Jagmelior.
1: You can see Marshall's photos from our visit to the Smithsonian, including Chris's office, on our blog at sciencepodcastforkids.com.
0: More from our interview with Chris Ma is available for Patreon members. Go to tumble tumblepodcast to find out more. I'm Lindsay Patterson, and I wrote and produced this show. I'm Marshall Escamilla, and I made all of the music. Thanks for listening, and join us next time for more stories of science discovery.